Hello, everyone. I'm Esther Pan Sloan, Head of Partnerships, Policy, and Communications at the United Nations Capital Development Fund. Welcome to Season 2 of Capital Musings, UNCDF's podcast, where we are focused on fresh ideas and new innovations that serve our mandate to make finance work for the poor in the world's least developed countries. You can find our Capital Musings podcast on Apple, Spotify, or our website, www.uncdf.org. Today, we're speaking with Meg Massey and Ben Robel, authors of the new book, Letting Go, How Philanthropists and Impact Investors Can Do More Good by Giving Up Control. Meg and Ben, it's great to have you with us today. Thank you so much. We're delighted to be here. Thanks for having us. So please tell us about yourselves. Where did you grow up? What did you study? And what led you to write this book? Meg, please first over to you. Sure. I grew up outside Boston and I've lived in Washington, D.C. for the last decade. And I was drawn to the city because I came at the beginning of the Obama administration. There was lots of excitement about making really big change. And I had studied English and history at Mount Holyoke College, was also very interested when I came to D.C. in really exploring what's going on in this moment of history. And it led me first to graduate school at Georgetown and then to my first real world job in the Obama White House working on public-private partnerships as a policy analyst. And that was really my introduction to the world of impact investing. So I've been working in impact investing for the last 10 years and a number of experiences in that led me to writing this book. Um, On my side, I grew up in New York, right outside the city. I studied political science in school, and I think a lot of people in the early Obama era, I was very idealistic and wanted to come to Washington, D.C. and do politics. And I ended up working at the NAACP. I was a young, white, 22 year old working in a majority black organization. And I mention it because that really led to me understanding that the world is much bigger than maybe I thought. And there were different ways of solving problems than maybe I had learned in my liberal arts school. And ultimately, those early experiences really informed some of the thinking that led to the book. But after NAACP, I ultimately moved over to Village Capital, where I now work. I'm the director of communications. And as we'll talk about Village Capital, it's a nonprofit. We do impact investing and we have a participatory model where we let entrepreneurs decide which of their peers should receive investment. Great. Thanks so much to both of you. It's fantastic to hear that you're both motivated by the Obama era to join government and to try to make a difference. I think it's really interesting to learn what triggers make people take certain actions. We've heard from our experience here at the UN that the SDGs are a similar trigger, which are really driving people towards looking at more impactful careers. Meg, please tell us about your company, Sans Peur. Is Am I pronouncing it correctly? You are pronouncing it correctly, although enough people have said Sans Peur, and I do that sometimes, so you're fine. So I launched my company in 2019, and this was after, as I said, several years in the impact investing world on the communication side, first at the Urban Institute and then at the Global Steering Group for Impact Investment. And going out on my own and starting this company was really about something I kept seeing, which was that the conversation about impact investing was very insular. It felt like a very clubby feel when, in fact, how money is used and what impact it has, that's something that affects everybody. So the real impetus for forming Sampa was around how do we get more people engaged in this conversation? How do we make this more inclusive? How do we really think about the values of impact investing and share those with people outside of this, again, very insular world of um, wealthy investors and philanthropists who are well-meaning, but that's still a very small group. 
that has a lot of money and how do we make that more democratic? And that was actually one of the first conversations that Ben and I had when we met was this shared belief that we're in a space, we have this progressive political background. And as, even though everyone's heart is in the right place, this doesn't feel very democratic. That's really interesting to hear because it's very similar to discussions that have taken place in rooms that I've been in with donor states, donor governments, and member state governments who all have aid money and are trying to help other countries. But the distance often between how the aid money is allocated, what sectors it goes to, what countries it goes to, and what the countries themselves need or are looking for is enormously vast. And in many cases, I was quite shocked to find out that nobody asks the recipients what they need or even what they want. They just deliver it. So I think there are quite a lot of parallels to how philanthropy works. And one thing you guys both point out in your book that it's often about more about the giver than the recipient. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, so Sansperson, so we work on communications for these different impact investors and philanthropists. Like I'm trying to help them communicate in a way that's more accessible. And in the time that you've been following the impact investment field, how has it changed? Yeah, you know, I think that the first thing that I think some people might not understand is that impact investing may very well have become a popular term after the Bellagio conference in 2009. Everyone likes to talk about that and global impact investing network started around then. But really the idea goes way back. People have been doing investing that has an ethical dimension for a long time. And a lot of this has been around religious communities, but there has been in the past 10, 12 years, a a real conversation about impact investing in the philanthropic world, in the finance world. And I think there's maybe been a couple different phases to that. Maybe in the first few years, people were talking simply about what are we investing in? Let's divest from things like tobacco and arm sales. Let's focus on impact-driven entrepreneurs and let's see if we can make both profit while having a purpose. Then there started to be a conversation about who was making these investments. And there were some really intentional conversations about diversity in Silicon Valley and in the finance space overall. And with our book, we are pointing to a more recent conversation going beyond what, even going beyond who and talking about how, what is the process by which investments are made, by which investment decisions are made. And it's certainly important to talk about the who, but there's also, there's data out there from Columbia University and elsewhere that even when a VC firm has more female investors, the women investors still might ask some of the same questions that sort of put more of the burden on women founders. There are all sorts of implicit biases that are so deeply ingrained that what we found is that there are now investors that are approaching the how question by seeding decision-making power, by putting their money in a black box and asking community members, how do you want us to spend this? And that's what our book is about. To echo that, I would say that there's also been a shift into more of a moral conversation in the impact investing space that gets at the who and the how, as Ben said. When I was new to this space and I was working obviously on the government side and policy and people might forget because it was 10 years ago now, but this was the fiscal cliff, this was budget cuts, the sequester. So there was a real focus on basically convincing people that impact investing wouldn't lose you any money, that you would still get market rate returns, that on the government side, things like social impact bonds were primarily about saving money because that was the resonant cultural argument at the time, especially in Washington, D.C., there was a reason why that was happening at that moment in time, but now we're much more, as Ben said, talking about this moral question of who is making decisions and how are those decisions being made, which is, I think, a welcome growth in the field. 
Meg, it's interesting that you mentioned the resonant cultural argument, because I do think even in the time that we've followed impact investing here from UNCDF, that the discussion has changed, that especially in the United States, five years ago, when we started talking about the sustainable development goals and impact investing, there was a lot of a suspicion, I would say, from investors where they would say, oh, that's concessional investing, you're just going to lose me money. And then I've been really shocked at the pace of the change where now people are saying climate risks are material, these are real fiscal risks, management, how management treats its staff is important, social justice is important, and we see those as material financial risks that are both relative, they're material both to our financial performance, but also important to us on a uh, wider level that's equal to the business consideration, which is not how we were hearing people talk about it before. So, I wonder, Meg, in the book, you guys are calling out the current model of philanthropy as top-heavy, insular, and run by disproportionately white men of privilege. Please uh, break that down for us and tell us more about it. Sure. I think most listeners probably know that wealth inequality is a huge problem. We're in basically a second gilded age where there's high wealth concentration at the very top of the pyramid and everyone else, there's a huge gap. And this echoes 100 years ago in the first Gilded Age when John Rockefeller's net worth was something like 2% of the entire U.S. economy. And that's because there was no wealth tax, there were no labor regulations, you had these new industries, much like you have today. At that time, it was railroads, and now it's technology. So you have these people making immense amounts of money very quickly through these things that they've invented, these innovations and new industries. And then they're turning around and saying, okay, now that we've changed the world by inventing Facebook or whatever the case may be, let's change the world by doing something good. And what we talk about in the book is that's a noble impulse, but having billions of dollars at your disposal, that's immense power. And should that power really be concentrated in a single person? Historic gaps in wealth, women and people of color. If you weren't white, it was really hard for you to earn a fortune until relatively recently. And that playing out in opportunity gaps that have been studied a great deal, that it's still mostly white men who are able to make that fortune, make it to the top, and then turn around and become billionaire philanthropists. And again, nothing wrong with philanthropy, but no one elected you to make decisions that with your billions of dollars, that will affect billions of people. And I think one of the things that really surprised us during the research that we did for this book was discovering like just how much the level of ego in a lot of the projects that you see funded by wealthy white men, it's not that they're trying to solve a problem that doesn't exist, it's that they're trying to solve a problem that does exist, but from this perspective that doesn't benefit from lived experience. And when you bring in that lived experience, you end up thinking about problems in a different way, you think about solutions in a different way. And that ends up affecting the entire funding process. So we identify in the book three different decision points that right now are done in a very cloistered fashion that could be opened up to include the voices of people with lived experience who can say, hey, we don't consider that the biggest issue for our community, or we agree this is a huge issue, but here's why that solution you're pushing isn't a great idea. Here's some of the ideas we have and things that will make sense in our context, whether that's in an activist movement like Black Lives Matter or something that's more geographically focused, particular neighborhood. 
This is so interesting because I keep hearing parallels to the way development works. So a few years ago, I was in Laos visiting one of our projects and it was a school that was built with a local community where UNCDF put in a little money and the, the community came with the, up with the rest of it. And the benefit of having that model is that the community gave their own resources, time, labor, the local government put in funding. So they essentially built a school exactly how they wanted it themselves and they used it all the time. And right next to this school was another building that had been built by a donor, all the resources had come in from the capital, including the labor. No one in the town had anything to do with it. It showed up in their town one day and it was the high school, but they didn't have enough children to fill the high school. So it was such a great example for me of you can have the best intentions, but if you are far away from the problem, you may have zero impact or a negative impact on the communities you're trying to support. Ben, please tell us about, Meg was mentioning these closed and opaque decision-making processes within foundations. Please tell us about some processes that might work better. So the book Letting Go is, is, is very much that. We are saying, because of the reality, we are encouraging people in positions of power, people who allocate resources, whether that's in philanthropy, whether that's in impact investing, whether that's in international aid, to uh, let go of some of that power, which is sometimes people are skeptical, but it, there are examples of that happening around the world. The model that people might be most familiar with is participatory budgeting, which is, of course, on a municipal or state and government level. And there are cities, there are dozens of cities across the world that have chosen to put 30 million or 100 million dollars up for essentially a referendum for citizens to decide how it's spent. And this model has been proven to be effective, but it's relatively newer in the altruistic and the social sector space. We talk a lot about participatory grant making, which is a pretty well-developed model at this point. And that involves a uh, foundation, essentially, like I was saying earlier, putting money in a black box and then asking community members, how should we spend this? Um, it often takes the form of a decision-making board that is often 50% people from the community, 50% donors or staff members from the foundation. And that's been happening quite a lot around the world. On the impact investing side, it's far less developed. There's no particular phrase. Folks have been using the term community-centered development, but really there's a big global angle to this, and then there's the local angle. And I think we can probably talk about both. On the global side, there's the example of Village Capital, which is where I work. I know you recently had my colleague Rob Tashima on, who spoke about our peer-selected investment model. But in a nutshell, we run accelerator programs in a specific region and in a specific sector. So right now we're running a program in Sub-Saharan Africa around the future of work. We train up these entrepreneurs. We get 12 entrepreneurs all from Sub-Saharan Africa. We put them through an accelerator program. And at the very end, they've all gotten to know each other very well. They've gotten to see each other's businesses really at the ground level, peer to peer. And we ask them to go through this voting process and select collectively two of their peers to receive money from our affiliated fund. And we've found, as Rob talks about, that this is not only effective, it leads to profitable investments, but it also mitigates some of the bias against female entrepreneurs. So we've been, again, testing this model out. So how do you make investments on a global level? And Meg, maybe you can talk about one of the examples on the more local level. Yeah, so the local level example that we ended up lifting up in the book was really personal for me because it was the Boston Ujima Fund, and I, I grew up outside Boston, and we were able to do two reporting trips to meet with their leadership before the pandemic hit. We started writing the book in November 2019, so we had a few months of the normal universe before 
before we were locked down. What Ujima Fund has done is create a model that is entirely controlled by working class residents of color in the Boston neighborhood of Dorchester. What they've done is they've raised this fund and it's included investments of as little as like 50 bucks from local residents and then these much larger 50,000 dollar checks from wealthy people in the Boston area. The difference with this fund is that only the residents are able to vote on where that money is invested. And the wealthier investors, they accept this when they make the investment. They accept that the community will be the ones making the decision about the investments. And we spoke a number of times with Lucas Turner Owens, who was the fund manager at Ujima, who explained it in a way that made a ton of sense that if the community is saying, hey, we really want an organic grocery store, presumably if they're able to invest in one and have it be part of the community, then they're going to become patrons of that business and it will be successful. So there's a real risk mitigation strategy baked into this pretty new idea. They call themselves the first democratic investment fund in the United States. And Ben and I and all of our research did not find anything that would challenge that superlative. The other thing that they've done that I find fascinating is they have what's called an inverted capital stack. So in traditional investing, the person who writes the biggest check for a fund, they are the first to get paid back if it makes money. The idea being that because they put so much money in, they're taking on a bigger risk. What the Ujima Fund has done is that the local resident who invests $50, if they're low income, that's a much more significant percentage of their income than the millionaire who invested 50 grand. So the way they see it is that resident is actually taking on a bigger risk. And therefore, if the investment makes money, they are the first to be paid back. They're the first to receive returns. So it's also a way of building wealth in this community. And I learned so much about my own city from researching this, that the average wealth of a Black resident in Boston is $8. That's the average family wealth for white family many times that. And like many American cities, Boston has a history of redlining and segregation that obviously shaped how wealth was accumulated over the years. And this is a really wonderful, innovative way to push back on that and start writing a new narrative. And their very first investment uh, was in a company called Ciro, which does composting for businesses and schools. And they voted for this because they all knew the woman who owned it um, and ran it. It was a worker-owned co-op. And Massachusetts had recently passed a composting law that made basically made it more accessible, more affordable. So the residents also saw like this is going to grow. And sure enough, during the pandemic, they ended up picking up a lot of business. They used the investment to hire more people, I think, buy a new truck. And so they made this investment in, I believe, early 2020. I believe that's their only investment to date. So far, we have maybe a little over a year of evidence that they've made a good investment. But so far, it points to you know this being just as an appropriate way of, of making an investment as locking yourself in an office somewhere and saying, all right, this place 3,000 miles away. We really think this is the winner. It's really wonderful to see. That's fantastic. And thank you for sharing these alternate models. We had recently a guest on the podcast who is a Swedish professor who studies gender decision-making in investments, decisions from investment committees and asset allocators, and the structural bias that is revealed when you compare the experience of a woman pitching a fund versus a man pitching the same fund with the same performance is unbelievable. And in all of these back tests, they find that women are refused more and they are allocated less money when they are approved. So we know the systems are flawed. And so it's really fantastic that you guys are surfacing models of how to do this whole thing better. 
this model sounds amazing, right? It sounds like what a great thing to do. But you guys had mentioned that a good part of charitable giving has to do with the ego of the giver. So how do you convince somebody who presumably has a very healthy opinion of themselves because they've been very successful to take their name off the building, as it were, and instead of giving a big donation and buying a building and putting their name on it, to put it into a fund to allow poor people or the beneficiaries of their funding to have more say over what is essentially their money? Sure. No, it's a great question. It's one we thought a lot about while writing the book. I'd say the first answer is that there is a rising generation of younger donors. If we're talking about specifically philanthropy and impact investing, there is a generation of younger donors, millennials and whatever comes next after millennials, who are really passionate about tackling their own privilege. There are organizations like Resource Generation, Nexus, a few others, which a lot of them came out of the Occupy uh, protests. And it's their networks of young people who are spending their time, they're paying the dues because they say, I come from a background of privilege. I am uncomfortable with this level of privilege. A lot of them have trust funds. What do I do about it? So I think there's actually a lot of appetite for solutions. And I think that's in the next 20, 30 years, really curious to see how that grows. But of course, there are tens of billions of dollars out there of folks who are currently in philanthropy and currently doing impact investing. And we essentially have two big picture arguments, which will work differently with different people. There's the there's the efficacy argument, simply that this will lead to better decisions. I know Rob was talking on the podcast about Village Capital. We've made 111 investments through our peer-selected model, which is a lot of investments, right, for a single VC fund over a decade. We have an 88% survival rate. We've had 16 exits, and our fund is performing on par with its vintage. So we're really pleased with at least the, the first decade of results. But you, you can also look at studies of participatory budgeting. If you're looking at the efficacy of, are we solving the problem we want to solve? When you look at some of the biggest, widest ranging studies of participatory budgeting, a lot of them happen down in Brazil, which has been doing it for 30 years. You see lower infant mortality rates, higher rates of clean sanitation. So there's an efficacy argument, which I think is still being developed. And there's more and more research being done around this. And then there's just an ethical argument. There's the moral argument, which is, I think, on people's minds more and more that you can be cynical about it and call it a PR question, but people are recognizing that it's not sustainable for philanthropy to continue working as it currently works. And Meg, would you add anything there? No, I think sometimes you do have to say to people, do you want to be a pioneer on this? Do you want to be someone who lets go and make it sound exciting, even though it is, as you said, taking their name off the building? But I think it's another way of being an influencer. And it's also a way of, I've found this in conversations with women investors. There's still a huge gender bias in investing and there are white women in the United States and being asked like, you're a woman, tell me how we should invest in women in sub-Saharan Africa. And you're like, well, I really want to go to bat for women as a whole, but I've never been there. I, I don't know what they need. You need to ask them. And this way of lifting up all women, I think, at least in that group of investors, I'm seeing a lot of openness to that. And that's something I've experienced. And I'm not even an investor, but just how do we organize an event for women in Northern India? And that connects them with the right investors. And I'm like, look, I could look at spreadsheets and I can make some inferences, but that's not me. Why should I be the one making that decision? Why don't we bring those people into the fold? I think writ large, as Ben said, there's much more of a recognition that there's a limit to what any of us can do. We shouldn't see that as a negative or a disincentive. We should see that instead as a real opportunity to bring more people into the fold. And I think the fact that we were working on this book with the pandemic and the 
protests in the wake of George Floyd's murder, I think that primed the world to move a bit faster on a lot of these and to really recognize what they were doing. On the communication side, I was seeing a lot of recognition among leaders that, oh, just having one meeting with HR about diversity and inclusion isn't enough to back up the statement we made with strong support of Black Lives Matter. And I think that recognition is really what's changed. And this is a really great way to take advantage of it and giving people an opportunity to, instead of leading by being in front of the microphone and making all the decisions, by being a leader behind the scenes. And how do I bring more people towards this microphone? How do I lift up other voices other than my own? And I think there's a willingness to take on that, to take on that challenge that wasn't, quite frankly, wasn't there before. That's great to hear because it's true that humility is not usually a trait terribly associated with very successful entrepreneurs of the variety that we've seen before. I think it's good to have also a historical reminder that the first Gilded Age ended with muckraking journalism and trust busting. So I'm sure some of these young high net worth people are also seeing that the mood is not, maybe the political mood will not tolerate massive wealth inequalities for extremely long times and in a democracy that we do have to have some kind of balance of inclusion and social justice and that the demand is coming for those things or or we have seen the demand rising even more for those uh, things in the last year or so. So Megan, Ben, as we wrap up, I wonder uh, if each of you had the choice to do one thing to improve this space and shift the balance of power in philanthropy and impact investing, what would you do? Meg, you first. I would want to somehow mandate that every investment committee include people with lived experience. And I'm thinking specifically of one of the more insane stories I heard from the world of um, VC tone deafness, which was these two male entrepreneurs who said, we really wanna help women, help people with periods. So we've invented this amazing tampon removal glove and they got 30 grand from a male investor. And like they quite rightly got roasted on social media. I think they stopped making that because everyone said that's, A, I don't know a problem not solving and B, that's not a need. That's not a need. And if literally just one woman had been in that investment committee and not just this one wealthy guy who was like, that sounds great. I'm so in. I think women are great and they really need this. And that is obviously an extreme example, but if you're thinking about inventing a product for someone, whether it's a social enterprise or just a regular commercial enterprise, people who might be using that product should be on your investment committee. Your target audience should be part of your investment committee. You should also be sourcing your deals from people who don't look like you. Those are the two things that I really want to see. I think that you actually open up so much more opportunity if it's not just five white guys in a room raising their hands. So that is my thing. That is a a great answer, hard to follow. One thing that I've been interested in and I've started to explore a bit is some sort of media platform that can lift up not only the voices of people who have been experimenting with these participatory models, but specifically the lived experience leaders who are actually doing the peer review, doing the grant reviewing. A lot of these folks are either activists or social movement or nonprofit leaders. And, you know, we interviewed 100 people for this book from all over the world. But if once we look back at who we interviewed, if we're being honest, it was mostly academics and the white leaders of these foundations that are doing things in an interesting way. And it's partly on us and it's partly just really harder to find these folks who are actually doing the, the, the peer reviewing because 
they don't have a website or a LinkedIn. All these activists, they're on the ground. They're experiencing these problems. So there are some incredible organizations like 2027 in the United Kingdom that actually place these lived experience leaders within social organizations and nonprofits and foundations. Um, so I think there's a lot of room to think, how can we lift up these leaders as leaders and frame them as experts, both whether it's a platform, whether it's getting them plugged into various networks. I think that's going to be a really key part of this. Thank you so much, Megan Ben. I don't think I expected that when you came on the show to talk about your book, we'd be hearing these radical calls for reversing the power dynamic of philanthropy. But it's fantastic to hear this perspective and to link it to structural inequities that exist in the world in which we operate, in both development finance, in philanthropy, in investing, in impact investing, in wealth accumulation. So we really appreciate the fact that you guys did write your book during the pandemic and also that you are bringing attention and visibility to new ways of doing things better. We always appreciate that. So thank you for joining us. Thanks for having us. Thank you so much. And thanks also to our audience for tuning into UNCDF's podcast, Capital Musings. Once again, you can find us on Apple, Spotify, and our website, www.uncdf.org.